Well, today we are starting a new series that we're calling Miraculous. And we're going to be looking at several of the miracles Jesus performed, which are found in the Gospel of John. And we'll study them to see what we can learn from them. Now, Jesus did many, many miracles. He healed people of all sorts of ailments, illnesses, and deformities. He cast out demons and spirits and set people free. He had power over nature like the wind and the waves of the sea. He multiplied food, causing just a little bit to turn into a whole lot. And he even raised people from death to life. Over the next few weeks, we'll concentrate on several of Jesus' miracles. But miracles aren't limited just to Jesus. Miracles are found throughout the Bible. Remember, Moses prayed, and he was used to cause many miracles to occur in Egypt. Joshua prayed, and the sun stood still in the sky to give more daylight to the Israelites to help them win a victory in their battle over the Amorites. Elijah caused just a tiny bit of olive oil and grain belonging to the widow of Zarephath not to run out over three long years of drought. And he also raised her son from death to life. And miracles still happen today. Do you believe in miracles? Have you ever experienced a miracle? Methodists have always believed in miracles. The founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, kept a very detailed journal throughout his entire life. And in it, he records many, many miracles that he witnessed and that he took part in. He records entries about spiritual warfare with demons. He writes about episodes of miraculous physical healings. He wrote about many, many other manifestations of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit that were made known and used to edify God and the body of believers. And of course, it's not just Methodists, is it? A 2006 Pew Forum survey revealed that hundreds of millions of Christians in the ten nations that were surveyed claimed not only to believe, but to have witnessed divine healing as well. And so if you believe in miracles, my friend, you are in very good company with Christians all over the world. But do you ever wonder about the possibility of a miracle in your life? I mean, do you ever expect God to do the unexpected? I mean, sure, we believe in God and we believe that God can do miracles. We read about them in the Bible. We hear about miracles that happen to other people. But do we believe that God will do a miracle in our life? That it could happen today or tomorrow or this morning, right as we are gathered here in worship together? I mean, what would happen if every single one of us came to church every single Sunday in expectation 
of the miraculous? Are we open to living in the supernatural realm of the Holy Spirit? Well, the very first miracle that John records in his gospel is the one that we are going to spend time looking at and thinking about today. And John is the only gospel that even contains this account. We can find it in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. When we compare this miracle to many of the other miracles Jesus performed, it kind of makes you wonder why he started with this one. And you might wonder why John chose this miracle when Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not. I mean, sure, changing water into wine requires supernatural ability, doesn't it? I mean, I'll be the first to admit I've never been able to change any water into wine. But is helping a friend who's having a beverage problem as a favor to your mom really the way you want to lead off all of the miracle stories of Jesus? But John obviously saw Jesus turning water into wine as a very important miracle. That's why he included it, and it does reveal some important truths for us, and so we're going to take a look at some of those truths today. But before we get into those, I want to say just a word about miracles and signs. Now, Noah Webster, I looked this up, defines the word miracle to mean a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. Now, John, in his gospel, does not use the Greek word for miracle 
when he talks about the miracles that Jesus did. You'll find that word in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But instead, John uses the word sign. He calls Jesus' healings and other deeds of power signs. And so we have to ask ourselves, is John just choosing to be a little different than the three synoptic gospel writers? Or does he purposely choose the word sign because he intends to convey something different? Now, we know that a miracle is considered to be the work of a divine agency. But a sign goes a step even further. A sign points to something beyond the act itself. On one level, the signs in John's gospel point to Jesus. They reveal his identity as the Son of God. And the signs also point through Jesus to God himself. In the opening chapter of John, he tells us that no one has ever seen God, but the Son came to make God known. Later, John tells us, that Jesus shows us God by speaking and acting like the Father does. And so as we study the signs in John's gospel, we're looking for the ways in which the sign points to God, what the Son reveals about the Father. And our hope is to come to know God better and thereby experience the abundant life that Jesus promises will come to us from knowing the Father. So in the story in John 2, we see Jesus, his mother, and the disciples. They've all been invited to a wedding. Don't you just love a good wedding? I love a good wedding. Weddings are beautiful, aren't they? Weddings are happy times. They are fun times. And in ancient times, a wedding celebration didn't last just a few hours. It went on for an entire week. A whole village would be invited, and all the villagers were expected to come, and they did come. And so as you might imagine, lots of food had to be prepared so that the wedding guests would have plenty to eat all week long. And naturally, lots of wine had to be on hand for this celebration. And if you've ever planned a party for that many people, you absolutely know that it takes a whole lot of careful planning and a lot of attention to details, don't you? Now think about it. Jesus had just barely even begun his earthly ministry. I mean, at the end of the first chapter of John, and this is only the beginning of the second chapter of John, at the end of the first chapter, Jesus had barely finished choosing his disciples. And think about it. Jesus has this huge mission from God, doesn't he? He's on a mission to save the entire world. And yet the very first thing he did was to attend the wedding of a friend. We don't really know who this friend is, but we can assume it was a friend and I think this shows us that God really cares about everything. I mean, Jesus took time to attend one of life's great celebrations, the joining together of a man and a woman in marriage. He wasn't too busy to go. 
He didn't send his regrets. He went with his mom and his friends. And everybody is having a great time as the festivities were going on. And then the unthinkable happened. <laughs> they ran out of wine. <laughs> I mean, this is an enormous social faux pas. I mean, it's worse than picking up the wrong fork and using it at a fancy dinner party. <laughs> it's worse than slurping your soup if you're invited to Buckingham Palace to dine with the queen. This is big. I mean, the groom's family would probably be ostracized from village life for a long, long time, maybe even forever. I mean, Near Eastern hospitality to guests is a huge deal, an even bigger deal than it is for us, and it is for us too, isn't it? It would be a big problem for you if you were hosting a wedding and you ran out of wine or food or whatever. This is a big deal. But Jesus cares about the situation at hand, and he does something about it. Sometimes I think we can get the wrong idea that God only cares about the really big things in life. Sometimes we hesitate to bother God or, or think that we will bother God if we come to him with the trivial things that we're facing. We think they're trivial. We think things like, does God care about that work presentation that I have that's important to me? Does God care about the anxiety that I'm feeling right now as COVID-19 is everywhere and that I feel anxious just going out in public with people that I don't even know where they've been? Does God care when I'm embarrassed, when I'm out to eat and my credit card has declined because I've been a little late on my payment? But this story shows us that God and Jesus cared about weddings as much as he did about saving the world. He cared as much about an awkward social situation as he did about curing disease or disfiguration. Jesus cared, and he provided, and he provided abundantly, didn't he? Now, I suppose Jesus could have just made a few extra cases of Cabernet Sauvignon show up in a box under the drink table. But what he did was so over the top. In the house, there were six stone water jars that were usually used for ceremonial washing. It was common for Jewish households to have these kinds of jars. And each jar would hold about 20 to 30 gallons of water. All six were filled up to the brim with water, and then the wine steward dipped some out only to find that it wasn't water in there anymore. It was wine. And not just any wine. It was the best wine. He thought they had saved the best until last. Can you imagine 180 gallons of some of the best premium wine that money can buy? Talk about abundance. Some years ago, probably in the early 90s, the church that my family was a part of in Dayton at that time did some work with a public housing project in the city of Dayton. 
And one Christmas, we had been joined with some other churches in the Dayton area to host a Christmas party for the children and their parents at the community center of this housing project. We planned to serve a really simple lunch of hot dogs, potato chips, and cookies. And then at the end of the party, each child would receive a gift that the churches had donated on their way out. Well, as we got there and were setting up for the party, word began to spread throughout Parkside Homes that this party was happening and the children and their parents and their guardians just started showing up. And boy, did they show up. More and more people just kept coming and coming and coming until the community center was just about stuffed to the gills of people. And then after everyone had eaten, lots of the kids said that they were still hungry, as you might imagine. Maybe they hadn't had breakfast that day. And they asked, could they have seconds? And so after everyone had received first, we started serving the seconds. And finally, everyone had had their fill, and the kids got their gifts, and the party came to an end. But as we were cleaning up, we started talking about how the party had gone. And someone asked Did anyone know how many people we had served? And we did because we had served on paper plates and we knew that we had had 500 paper plates and we had used every one of those paper plates and that every plate had a hot dog, potato chips, and cookie, whether it was your first or your second. But someone said, yeah, but we only bought 300 hot dogs because that's been more than we've ever needed for this party in the past. How had we served 500 hot dogs when we only purchased 300? (laughs) Because God provides abundantly. And the best part was when we looked in that giant pot of hot water sitting on the stove, there were still two hot dogs floating around (laughs) on the top. (laughs) God's abundance is amazing. And the superabundance of wine in this story is actually a sign that God is fulfilling some Old Testament messianic expectations. In Amos 9, 13, it says, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills in the messianic age. Joel 2, 24 says, the threshing floors will be filled with grain, the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. In Isaiah 25, it says that in the Messianic age, God will swallow up death forever. And on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. And here is Jesus. The miracle of Jesus turning water into wine also teaches us how we can trust God. I mean, first, God does not disappoint or forget. He cares about everything, and he provides abundantly. And in this story, at first, when Jesus' mother discovered that the wedding festivities had run out of wine, she comes to Jesus, and she lets him know about the predicament. I mean, it seems pretty clear that she expects that he's going to do something about this. I mean, she is the one person on earth who knew him better than anyone else and what he was capable of. And she had complete trust that he would resolve the issue. 
Now, at first, his response to her sounds a little startling to us. Woman, why do you involve me? I don't know about you, but I would have gotten a really stern talking to if I ever addressed my mother like that. <laughs> but biblical scholars tell us that that expression only sounds disrespectful when it's translated into English. In other words, for us in our modern ears. In the original Greek, it was a totally normal and perfectly respectful form of address. And we know it didn't phase Mary at all. She seems to ignore him, and she just tells the waiters, do whatever he tells you. She submitted to Jesus' way of handling the situation. Oh, she might have had her own ideas of what she thought he should do, but if she did, she certainly didn't say so. She didn't express it. She simply trusted Jesus, and she left it up to him. So, why did Jesus do this miracle? We're actually told in verse 11, it says, Jesus did hear in Cana of Galilee, or I'm sorry, what Jesus did hear in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, this miracle was performed to deepen the faith of his followers it was to make a definitive statement about who Jesus was and, and what he was about. John wanted to leave no doubt in the minds of his readers that Jesus was the Messiah. And at the end of his gospel, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is hoping that you will observe these miracle signs and come to faith in Christ so that you can have real, genuine life. There are a couple of other things that this sign of Jesus turning water into wine point to. You see, in Jesus, there's this new age breaking forth, the messianic age. And remember those water jars, the ones that were used for ritual cleansing? Those stone jars represented the old religious tradition. They represented the, the outward cleansing to make one pure and holy. You know as well as I do from reading the Gospels that Jesus butted head with the religious establishment over this kind of ritualization time and time again throughout the Gospels. Ritual cleaning of the body and only put, putting the right proper foods into the body is never going to clean a person's heart. Only Jesus can cleanse and purify us that way. Jesus by turning that cold, colorless water into rich, red wine, was serving notice that a new day is dawning. And Mary's words to Jesus, they have no wine, was in a very real sense an indictment upon the barrenness, the coldness, the sterility of religion of that day. And so what about us? What would people say about us? Would they say they have no wine? Is there wine in our worship? 
I mean, when you walk into worship on Sunday, do you come expecting that God is going to show up? When was the last time that you staggered out of church drunk with the real wine of worship? Your whole being in ferment under the impact of God's presence. Have you ever felt intoxicated like the disciples did on that first day of Pentecost, filled to overflowing with God's love, with his mercy, with the Holy Spirit? Now I'll admit to you, it sounds awesome, and it sounds scary. I really kind of like services where things are planned out and they're executed according to plan. It gets disconcerting when someone stands up and is moved and, and things get a little bit out of control. But is planning, is perfect execution what we really need? I mean, think about it. Wine is hardly safe, right? It's explosive. It's heady. It can make you feel great, but it can make you feel terrible, and it can cause you to lose control. But maybe that's just what we need. The intoxicating spirit to get a hold of our worship and, and turn it from something that's predictable and safe and turn it into the wine of astonishment and surprise. Is there wine in our witness? Are we trying just to be a nice person having a vague belief in the big man upstairs a mild glow of humanitarian benevolence what if we had a real passion for christ what if we had a single-mindedness to live out a radical walk with jesus no matter what it takes a refusal to go along with the crowd because it happens to be the popular thing at the moment do we engage in outreach because we want to give relief to the suffering or because we want to relieve our guilty conscience? Do we invite people into a relationship with Christ so that they can experience real life or out of a sense of duty? There isn't anything wrong with duty unless it causes us to miss the deepest joy, the real wine of the holy and sacrificial life. Finally, this sign of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding points to one other messianic prophecy, the bride and the bridegroom. Throughout scriptures, a picture is painted of God as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride. We see this imagery in the book of Song of Songs or also in the book of the prophet Isaiah, for example. But perhaps we see it most vividly in Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul compares the relationship between a husband and a wife with that of Jesus' relationship to the church as the bride and himself as the bridegroom. He says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
Jesus is the bridegroom that everyone is waiting for. His sacrifice sanctifies and cleanses his church. He cleanses us from our old ways, and he makes us a new creation. And so instead of being empty, we are full. Instead of being stone jars filled with water, we're filled with joy-giving wine. Just like Jesus was invited to the wedding in Cana, we too need to invite Jesus into our lives as our Savior, our Messiah, and our bridegroom. Let's trust God to do the impossible in our lives today. Invite him into your life to transform you into something new and sparkling for his glory. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you care about every detail of our lives. You care about the good times and those times when we are embarrassed by social faux pas and the times when we need so much to be cleansed from the inside out. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to do just that for us that in you and our belief in you, you make us new creations, that there is more than enough power in the power of your Holy Spirit to do everything that you want to accomplish in and through us for the world. Lord, change us from our old selves into the selves that you see us to be. Restore this creation to the Messianic age. Help us do our part, Lord, to spill out new wine, and new spirit power into the lives of others as we build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Help us come to each and every day, Lord, expecting you to do the unexpected, expecting you to pour out an abundance that we can't even imagine to where there's enough for everyone in all the world. We pray in Jesus' name.